Okay, we have some handouts going around uh, that might be helpful in terms of expanding a little bit or, you know, we might say expounding upon what we discussed last Sunday. Um, a bit of review there. If you weren't here or even if you were, it might be helpful. Uh, one thing we talked about is that uh, the language of the Christ event refers to the fact that the atoning feature of the work that Christ does um, happens in every aspect of his existence, from the time of the incarnation to the time of his ascension and enthronement. All of it is a healing, atoning work. Uh, just as Adam and Eve's journey was ours, now Christ's journey is ours. So that's one thing that's key to bear in mind. This is the undoing of the exile from Eden. So that's one thing we've talked about, a kind of thread that's woven its way through this dramatic narrative, is that ever since our exile from Eden, from shalom and communion with God and one another, and a peacefulness with all of the creatures of the earth and the earth itself, now we long for that return, and we also long for our destination, our, our telos, the future of creation itself. And this event is about God accomplishing that in some sense. And yet, it is still unfinished. So we live in the present where God has accomplished this. We also look forward to what is not yet here, but which is guaranteed to come. Okay, so uh, what this chart is, is these kind of different models of the way Christ does this work. And it can be helpful when you think of it in terms of um, rounding out our picture of the atonement, rounding out our picture of how Christ reconciles us with God. It's all about God reconciling the world back into relations, relationship with God's self and, again, with one another and the whole world being healed. Okay, so what you have in uh, on the far left-hand uh, column there, you have different models of the kinds of work that Christ does. And uh, this is taken, you'll see the footnote there, this is from uh, a scholar named Gabriel Fakra, who wrote a book called The Christian Story, A Narrative Interpretation of Basic Christian Doctrine. Uh, my undergrads read this, it's a useful book. And then John Mark Hicks added that last category there at the bottom, the, the row at the very bottom. And I think it's a helpful one. So um, just to kind of walk you through how you would make use of this, so let's think about all the different kind of saving features of what Christ does. So in that first column, we have example and teacher under the model. So uh, this is one way that Christ saves us. He lives as an example of what the true human should be, and he teaches us about how we are to think. The issue that he's addressing there, if you move to the next box, um, is our ignorance and our apathy and if we think about this in terms of a theodrama with different stages, different kind of settings, Galilee is the place where we see this played out most evidently. Uh, the focus is our attitudes and behavior. What's disclosed is that love of God and love of neighbor are at the heart of what it means to live as God would have us live. The outcome is that uh, our vision is illuminated and we are inspired to live as renewed people. Okay? The next one down, Suffering Savior, this is the model that we in Churches of Christ really focused on the most, I would say, in our theology. 
Um, to the point sometimes of neglecting the rest of this, which can be problematic. But I would also, you know, it's fun to pick on our own upbringing, I think, sometimes, but other traditions tend to focus on one of these to the neglect of others. So it's actually pretty important to attend to our sin and guilt. And when we start to think, I think, too much about what it means to live well without also grappling with our sin and guilt, then we get into trouble there. So um, Christ suffered for us. Uh, This addresses our sin and guilt. This happens primarily at Calvary with the crucifixion. The focus here is reconciling us, uh, humanity, to God. It happens through Christ suffering our punishment. Christ was without sin and guilt, and yet he suffered the punishment that comes of sin and guilt, which is death, and this kind of separation from God in death. And on the other side of that, judgment is turned into mercy. So uh, we didn't get to talk about this as much as I would have liked to at the end of the last class, but essentially what New Testament theology affirms about what Christ does in this moment is somehow there is some sort of debt that is paid. There is some sense in which um, Anselm says there is an eternal offense, an infinite offense against the Father, and because we are finite, we cannot pay that price. It takes someone infinite to pay the price, and only God can do that. So this is God sacrificing God's own self. Um, Now, we can talk about all these more, but we're also going to talk about the resurrection today and the ascension, so we have a lot to include. So we could have, I mean, there are, you know, whole dissertations written on each of these, essentially. Uh, But then the conqueror and lord model is also very important because the issue there that's being overcome is evil and death. Evil is systemic. Evil infects us at levels that we cannot address just by helping individuals. Um, there There are systems that we have to think about when we're trying to overcome evil that are bigger than us and even that are demonic in some sense. That means that there are, there are powers that go beyond just addressing world poverty, for example. There are demonic kind of spiritual powers invested in keeping us in systems of addiction and evil and abuse and violence. And Christ overcomes those, and he overcomes death at the resurrection because those powers and principalities cannot hold him in the grave. That's what's being affirmed there. Now, um, in terms of divine presence and the messianic son of man, I'm actually going to talk some about the messianic son of man when I talk about the ascension at the end of class today. So I'll save that attending to that as closely. But um, the divine presence we talked about last week, some in terms of uh, the significance of the word becoming flesh. This is about this. uh, Remember that God wants us to be in communion with him. The whole goal of humanity, the whole goal of creation was to move towards this end where heaven and earth overlap. That's the language N.T. Wright uses that I think is really helpful. So this is God assuring that this will occur by becoming flesh himself. So what's being addressed there is our temporality and finitude, which we had no way out of after we fell into sin. Um, We needed this, what's called, uh, some theologians call this super-added grace, a grace that comes on top of grace. Um, So we already lived in the grace presence of God, but when we sinned, we needed extra grace. We needed an extra help. Um, to to move towards that relationship. 
So you see how this functions and you see how you can kind of think about how, I, I think the most important thing about this chart and why it can be helpful is that all of these are valid ways of thinking about the work Christ does as saving us. And so we, where we kind of end up uh, limiting the story and limiting the power of it is when we stop attending to all of these. So when we just kind of focus on only one of them. Okay, I'm going to hand over to Josh. And then I'll swoop back in at the end. So, um, to pick up on that, the drum that I've been beating the uh, last couple times I've been up here is the same kind of thing Lauren was getting at about the, the richness, uh, the multifacetedness, if that's the right term, uh, of, of what Jesus is doing, of what the cross uh, and the resurrection accomplishes. Uh, it, we're thinking big story here, uh, dramatic logic. So what's the drama, uh, and how does this teach us to think? Uh, so within this... Uh, Within this drama, we think about who we are and who God is and what life is about. Uh, and this chart in and of itself is a helpful... You can see my gum here that's folded over. Um, it's always a classy thing to do. Um, just hold it like this. Uh, when you look at the second column, the issue, um, one way to look at that column is to think, this is telling us something about who we are or maybe who we were as humans. How do Christians understand the human condition? We see that uh, outside of Jesus' redeeming and reconciling work, we are suffering uh, under a certain ignorance and apathy. We are dealing with sin and guilt. We are those who are under the power of evil and death, transiency and mortality and fallenness. Um, we have learned at the beginning we are created in the image of God. So there's this dignified um, view of humans. We're given a vocation. Uh, but the cross also reminds us that we are not this kind of pristine image bearers. We are also broken. So it's not we're totally uh, a mess. We're all just all disgusting and terrible and, and just apes. Uh, but nor is it that we are, are just so good and if we were just left to our own devices, we would do nothing but create paradise. Instead, we are this kind of mixed bag as humans. Image bearers who are nonetheless ignorant, apathetic, and under the influence of sin and guilt and evil and death. We are complex beings. And so, as uh, Lauren was saying, how do we, how do we fix the problem, or, or what do we do about that? Well, we need a complex solution. Um, and so when we look to the cross, uh, it is dealing with more than one issue, uh, but multiple issues. Uh, so when the Roman world looked at the cross, they saw defeat. They saw foolishness, curse, rejection, shame, isolation, and perhaps unrighteousness, unjustness. The Roman world, uh, you put, basically the, the cross is for primarily the, the punishment of slaves uh, and insurrectionists. This is where you put someone to show uh, just how low they are in your eyes. So, Jesus on the cross is a sign of utter shame and defeat in the Roman world. They like to put them in well-trafficked places or on, um, uh, do crucifixions on hilltops so everyone could see both their shame and Rome's power. But, strangely enough, early Christians looked at the cross and saw victory and love 
wisdom, forgiveness, reconciliation, honor, mediation, and righteousness. Same event, different lenses by which to view this. Christians see the cross as a sign of victory, where Jesus, strangely enough, defeats sin and death in some sort of um, cosmic calculus that we can't fully understand. But somehow, uh, the New Testament witnesses that this changes things. Christians look at the cross and don't see shame, but see love. The cross declares in no uncertain terms that God loved the world enough to send his only son to suffer and die to make it whole. Who are we? We are this kind of mixed bag. Who is God? The Christians have this distinct and I think unique claim among all world religions and worldviews. God loves his creation enough to die for it. To take that for granted is to miss out on something that's so beautiful and powerful in our Christian witness. Christians look at the cross and they don't see foolishness as the Roman world did. Uh, I mentioned this in a Good Friday sermon I gave at at Lipscomb once, but um, there's a graffiti from the Roman world uh, where it says, it's got this guy worshiping someone on a cross. It says, Alexa Minos worships his God, and his God is on the cross, and he has the head of a donkey. Uh, So the graffiti artist is essentially saying, Alexa Minos is an idiot. He worships uh, this guy who's like, well, I cover this up, jackass. Uh, the donkey on the cross. What an idiot Alexa Menos is. That's how the Roman world views the cross and views those who worship the cross. And yet Christians, because they're looking at this from different lenses, they see their wisdom, where true victory is won not by violence and coercion, but through cruciform love. As people who find ourselves in this drama and say, this is our story, this is true about who God is and who we are, we're also saying... This is the path that we are willing to walk on to make a real difference. The path of cruciform love. Where do we see ultimate victory? Not by voting the right way, not by having the strongest military. I'm not saying there's not a place maybe for these kinds of things, but ultimate (coughs) victory? Ultimate victory comes through sacrificial love. Christians saw forgiveness. For through the cross, forgiveness is made available and extended in a new and far-reaching way. Uh, as Jesus is about to, um, about to go to the cross, he's having the last supper with his, uh, with his disciples, and he speaks of the, the cup of wine as the blood of the new covenant. This is powerful language. Uh, the old story, which is part of Jesus' story, but that, that uh, first or second act of the drama of Israel's story, that's, that is covenant. That is the old covenant, the first covenant, perhaps. And Jesus is saying a new covenant is breaking in through his spilled blood. And in that new covenant, Jeremiah speaks of a time when a new covenant is coming. And forgiveness will be made uh, more available and it will seem to do more work. And God will be more intimately dwelling with his people. And so the cross is like uh, the beginnings of this inbreaking of God's presence. And as we get to the resurrection and ascension, we'll see uh, that even more. In the cross, uh, Christians see, strangely enough, as we get in Hebrews, mediation. Jesus is not only the sacrifice, he is the great and true high priest who offers this sacrifice. The one who is fully God and fully human, 
is the perfect mediator, the perfect priest, between God and humans. Because he is both. And they see righteousness because the cross not only revealed Jesus being right, but also as how God makes his people right. So in the Gospel of Luke, uh, after Jesus is crucified, uh, we have the resurrection story. So if you want to, you can open up to Luke 24. Or you can listen to me read a couple uh, passages here. I'm going to start with verses 25 through 27, and then skip down to 44 through 49. I feel like you can't drink water in public anymore without uh, thinking about Kavanaugh, right? All right? Just every time you drink water while you're nervous, that's what comes to mind. Um, is that just me? That's just every time I see someone drink water in public when they're speaking, um, that's what I think of. Um, so, how foolish you are, Jesus says in verse 25, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? In beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. All right, now let's go to 44 through 49. Jesus says something very similar here. And what I want you to think about is, what passages is he talking about? Jesus said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me. What is he talking about here? That is written about me in the law. So we're talking the Pentateuch. Of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. Go ahead and find me this passage in verse. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day in repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have received it and been clothed with power from on high. The Messiah, this is what is written, the Messiah will suffer and rise. That's not technically written in a proof text kind of format. Instead, to understand what Jesus seems to be pointing to here in Luke, twice, is saying, what I am doing, or what's happened with the Messiah, his death and resurrection, is filling full this story. You don't go to Zechariah 9-2, or Malachi 1-4, or Psalm, whatever, although there are these little proof texts maybe along the way, but instead, you don't have something that says the Messiah will suffer and rise on the third day. Instead, Jesus seems to be, as he opens their minds, saying, this is where it's all been pointing. If you understand how to read this, if you notice from the beginning what was happening with Adam and then Abraham and then the Torah uh, and the prophets uh, and the kings, uh, this is leading up to God becoming flesh and dying on behalf of his creation. And both times he tells them, they're like, what? And then he opens their minds to see this, and then they bear witness to the resurrection, and it's like, finally they begin to have eyes to see. Uh, And part of the reason I point to this is to help you realize that um, even the way Luke tells the story, it's not a clear uh, step A, step B, step C, death and resurrection. Instead, we have to step back and see uh, something of the revelation of who God is and who humans are and what the problem is in order to understand how this might be the solution. Um, And it's really only fully clear Uh, after the fact, after the resurrection. Uh, So Paul will even say, 
If Christ has not been raised, your faith is useless. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is useless. Um, so what makes the resurrection of Jesus so fundamental to Christian faith? Well, when Paul speaks to the Corinthians in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, he tells them that Jesus' resurrection is the guarantee that their sins are forgiven. It's not only the cross, but the cross and resurrection Paul ties to forgiveness of sins. The resurrection uh, gives them hope that their own bodies will be raised. And the resurrection is a signal that Jesus is who he claimed to be. If Jesus is risen from the dead, sin and death have been defeated by love. The way of cross is wisdom because it's the way of victory, of restoration, of newness and wholeness. And if Jesus were not raised from the dead, then the cross is more likely foolishness, a sign of defeat. So, uh, those who want to talk about Jesus as only a good moral teacher, who was crucified, kind of like a Socrates, uh, and that's it, they don't get it. They're not understanding that for Christians, if Jesus isn't raised then it's not that good of an idea to follow him. If Jesus isn't raised, then cruciform love might not be the way to go. Or Paul, Jesus isn't raised, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. The resurrection is fundamental to Christian faith. Um, I heard, um, I listened to the the, um, uh, lesson from last week, and I thought Brad uh, raised an interesting comment about uh, the creeds and how they focused on certain things like Jesus' death and resurrection and not so much his life. Um, and uh, to kind of echo what Lauren said, I don't think that Brad represents this, this um, group, but there is, there has been throughout Christian history this idea that all you really need is Jesus' life. All that other stuff about his death and resurrection uh, has been maybe uh, is secondary or something like that. Just a good moral teacher. Um, that doesn't sustain the Christian faith. Uh, both Jesus' life and the confession of his death and resurrection uh, must go together. So I was at this uh, scholars' retreat or, or um, scholars' conference over this the um, the break, and uh, one of my dear friends is uh, in the Methodist Church that's about to be going through a split, and um, you have one side, as he tells it, uh, that is is trying to stick and hold on to historic Christian faith. Uh, which includes the life of Jesus, but also the things we find in the creeds. Um, and he says the people um, that he is encountering anyway um, are less interested in some of those historic confessions of faith. And they mostly are uh, concerned about social justice. Um, and social justice matters. We've seen that in this class. But they are trying to pursue social justice uh, without the foundation of Jesus as fully God and fully human, uh, without the foundation of Jesus' resur- resurrection and defeat of sin and death. And so what he finds is, uh, my favorite new term, is a lot of virtue uh, posturing. People who say a lot about social justice and then aren't actually putting their action or their money where their mouth is. And so you have a branch of people who are all talking about social justice and Jesus' life And yet, because they don't put their faith that um, Jesus has also overcome sin and death and injustice, uh, they end up not actually pursuing it and living this kind of thing out. Both are necessary. Both are so necessary. I wish I I could just, just, I don't know, I don't understand how um, some people lose sight of that, but if you leave out the cross and resurrection, Christianity soon just kind of falls in upon itself.
Uh, I have a whole lot more to say about uh, resurrection, which I might have to... Um, Lauren, can I do a, like a two-minute, um, and then I'll let you do ascension. So, um, quick thing about why some people see uh, the resurrection. Uh, there is some reason to believe it as a historical event. Um, so let me give you three quick pieces of evidence. First, uh, it seems pretty likely that there was an empty tomb. Uh, second, uh, there is uh, claims about uh, Jesus appearing alive after his death. And third, uh, there is the unprecedented uh, belief in the resurrection of the Messiah. So, why people might think the tomb was empty? Uh, you have early uh, and independent historical writings. So you've got the Gospels and Paul uh, attesting to this. And if the tomb wasn't empty, uh, it's likely that the opponents of the Christian faith would have said, here he is, the guy you said rise from the dead. So there's, there's decent reasons to believe in empty tomb. Doesn't prove resurrection, but it's one piece of evidence. Second, um, you have lots of people claiming they saw him after death. And not just seeing a spirit, which was common, but seeing a physical being. Uh, so not only do you get this in a lot of early and independent writings, again, the Gospels, uh, Paul's letters, uh, you also have female witnesses uh, attesting to this. In the first century world, if you're going to fabricate witnesses, sorry, you're not going to fabricate female witnesses because they weren't seen as reliable uh, as witnesses. So it's kind of reverse evidence here. If you're going to make something up, you would make up uh, some sort of high-status witness. But instead, uh, this seems to point to something of the, uh, the reality. Uh, there really were females who were the first witnesses to this. And then you have Paul saying, look, there are 500 people, and some of them are still alive. If uh, you want to check in on this, talk to those people. Um, so... Even more, though, to me, the, one of the strongest reasons uh, to think about the resurrection as a historical event, event is the disciples' uh, historically unanticipated um, belief in this. No one in the first century world uh, was expecting a resurrected Messiah. There were other would-be messiahs in that day who were killed, and none of their followers said, hey, he's risen from the dead. No one was expecting a resurrected Messiah. All right, that, that comes around after Christians' experience of Jesus. Uh, second, no one was expecting an individual resurrection of the body prior to the great resurrection at the end of the world. So those few people in the ancient world, which were only Jews and only some sects of Jews, the rest of the Greco-Roman world, no resurrection. Only some Jews thought something of a resurrection, and the resurrection they thought of was at the very end of time. No one's getting resurrected prior to that. And here we have something that no one was expecting, individual resurrection prior to the end, and a resurrected Messiah, and, um, uh, let's see, I lost my, um, my place here, um, so, um, well, maybe that was two of those things, so you have the empty tomb, uh, the appearance alive after his death, and the historically unanticipated belief in the resurrection, if people were going to make up a story, this isn't the story they would make up, they would make up, um, a resurrected ghost, or not resurrected, but a vision of a ghost, but not of a, a physical being. Um, if people were just going to hallucinate, it would be unlikely they would all hallucinate this strange kind of thing that no one was expecting. You would hallucinate what you would expect to see, not what you wouldn't expect to see. Um, so, if you go into more detail on this, but uh, suffice it to say, it's not such a far-fetched idea. There is some not insignificant historical evidence for this, uh, one of these central claims of Christian faith. All right. We're going to see if we can just totally overwhelm y'all with good info today. Okay, so um, 
I'll close by talking a bit about the ascension, and we can pick back up on this next time as needed. Um, I, I think what I would just want you all to take away today is that the ascension is a key part of the story. Um, after the empty tomb comes the ascension and enthronement. Um, into the, uh, Christ goes into the throne room of God, and he is fully human when he makes that journey. He stays human. So that's a key key point in the story here. Okay, so when, when he's standing, when Jesus is standing before the Sanhedrin council and they ask whether or not he's the Messiah, he, he quotes Daniel 7.13, and I'll read this. Uh, he says, this is the passage that says, As I watched in the night visions, I saw one like a human being coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the ancient one and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and kingship that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away, and his kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. So when Jesus references this passage, he's not just deflecting the question, are you the Messiah? Uh, Rather, he is saying that he will rise and be enthroned. So he's identifying with this figure, this uh, the Son of Man, the Messianic Son of Man. Um, I will come to the Ancient of Days with the clouds, he's saying. The Father will give me the kingdom, and I will rule it until death is destroyed. So um, this also connects with what we see in 1 Corinthians 15, 20-28. If you want to try to turn there, this is a really important uh passage in connecting the resurrection with the ascension and what's happening here. So I won't read the entirety of it, but um, 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 28. Uh, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. And then it goes on to talk about him. All of the enemies are being put under his feet. Uh, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. That's verse 26. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Okay, so what's going on here? Well, a couple of things. First of all, when we hear that language of um, the Messianic Son of Man coming with the clouds into heaven. It's key here to, to note this is not about the second coming. It's about his entrance into the heavenly throne room because he is coming with the clouds. He's not descending. Okay, so he's not coming on the clouds. He's going with them. So this is about him going into the presence of the Father. And then what's happening with this language in 1 Corinthians about him being the first fruits? Um, what we can think of here is that in Hebraic thinking, the first fruits are the first part of the harvest. They are the first to be offered to God uh, because this is a way of Israel giving the best to God rather than hoarding and keeping the best for itself or out of fear. Uh, it's a way of saying our, our first and best belongs to God. Another key uh, kind of theological connection here to make is that the first fruits are part of the harvest. Okay. So the reaping goes together with the rest of the harvest. It has the same character. So what we're being assured here is that we can look at Jesus' resurrected body 
as a promise of things to come for all of us, all of us who are in Christ. This is a guarantee and picture of the future. You could think of it as a kind of preview of coming attractions. It bears witness to the nature of the new creation. So, uh, by Christ rising and going into the throne room of God, with all things being put under his feet, um, what we are assured of in this is a kind of completion of this event. We have now transitioned into something like new creation. God didn't just raise Jesus from the dead to prove that he's a good guy, although something like that is happening. There's a vindication of him as being the righteous one. Um, but there's something bigger than that happening. There's a declaration that this is the inbreaking of the new creation. All things are being made new. Uh, so, as Josh said, no one expected a resurrected Messiah because they thought that was going to be relegated to the end of time. This is the end of time breaking into the present. We've talked about this as a proleptic moment. God is bringing new creation into history. And uh, a key here is that when Christ is exalted, the Spirit is poured out. We'll look at that next week more, about what, what's the connection between the outpouring of the Spirit and Christ's ascension. But I think we can think of it in some, some kind of like basic terms as now humanity has been fully reconciled to God. Now the Spirit can live and dwell amongst us. So when we think about that question of why aren't things better if Christ really defeated sin, evil, and death? Why does it seem like sin, evil, and death are still winning? That's a great question, and it's a hard question. But I think it's one that we sometimes ask because we are so accustomed to the kind of benefit that we have of, of doing what we're doing right now. Um, you know, in the, pre, in the way things used to be, we would have had to have made a pilgrimage to the temple in Jerusalem to gain access to God, right? And be in the court of the Gentiles. Now we get to gather together and worship with the Spirit amongst us. That is a remarkable privilege. And it is one that we, can, we have access to the, the triune God in the privacy of our own room when we say our prayers. So um, the outpouring of the Spirit is the piece of the story that we've also kind of historically downplayed that is a huge piece of what is significant about this whole thing. So I don't want to get into much to next week's discussion, but I want to emphasize that the outpouring of the Spirit is a huge piece of this. I also want to say that everything, there's this now and not yet quality to the story. Everything is in subjection to Christ, but everything has not yet been put under his feet. Death will be the last enemy to be destroyed. So we still live in the face of sin, evil, and death. Now, we are to be the agents of reconciliation and healing in the world. That's part of our work as being agents of the Spirit. Um, but we also live under the burden and reality of these things still. They have been destroyed. They are being destroyed. The, the whole thing will be accomplished. Heaven and earth will overlap. That is the guarantee we are given. And yet we still live in the midst of the brokenness. And I think to say otherwise is to ignore that reality that we all eventually encounter, right? Um, okay, so Matt, I don't know if you want to jump in here. We have, it's 1043. Of course, my job is to sort of wrap up a little bit. One of the things that fascinated me today was the the, the way the two of you went through sort of the 
the basics of the life of Christ in really rapid fashion, but trying to connect that his life matters, that the fact of how he lived. Maybe a, maybe a better way to put that, given the chart, is, is reminding us to look at Christ's working life. What, what were his, his multiple jobs? Give us a much richer understanding of salvation. Salvation as a, a rich and complex thing rather than a simple one-off death on the cross thing was, was interesting to me. The idea of connecting his crucifixion as uniquely important as a mediation. Christ isn't Christ without the crucifixion. But he's also not Christ without the resurrection. And he's also not Christ without the ascension. Juggling all of those at the same time to me is is a richer understanding of who Christ is and was and why it mattered that I hadn't really appreciated before. I'm curious about two things. Um, One, to start with the last thing first, is is now my attention is really whetted to talk about the Holy Spirit in in terms of what that means in our life. Because it's a reminder of of what we still have to deal with. It's a world in which there is still death, there is still sickness, there is still evil. Bad things do happen, and often to good people. How are we to to get our heads and our lives around that? It it reminds me, and I hope this, this will come out next week, that, that what's required of us as followers of Christ is, is what was required of Christ, which is, is patience. And patience in the sense of its, its root word in Latin, which is the term passio, from which we get also get our word passion. But it means suffering. It, it, it means life is hard and it's supposed to be hard. And by dealing with the hardships of life, we reflect Christ's life. That's an uncomfortable truth for me, but it makes me curious about next week. If we are to live as he did, then we can't live a life where we're not having to encounter death and evil and hardship. Otherwise, we're not living the life he lived. We're not dealing with it the way he dealt with it. That's a challenge to me. Last but not least, and this has to do with the sermon. How many of you were in first service? Okay, this is not a spoiler alert. I mean, don't worry about that. But one of the things that um, resonated with me today was, was the Ray Rubio in talking about how Paul, uh, that, in giving us that image of Paul at the end of the book of Acts, telling people about the gospel, made me think this way um, in connection with this course. I don't draw very well. But Josh, in particular, has been using the notion of a lens. And so, one of the things that I'm pondering now is the difference between these two schemes, or these two images. They both have to do with that idea of a lens. That's a lens, by the way. (laughs) The way I grew up was looking at the Bible... To see the gospel. I mean, that just that was just common sense. How do we know the gospel? Well, we 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 look at everything through the Bible. But listening to Rubio talk about what Paul was doing, who didn't yet have a New Testament in his hand, although he was busy writing a lot of it. What if this is a different way of understanding 
What does it mean to look at the Bible through the lens of the Gospel? And all of a sudden I thought, oh, that's, that's what Paul is doing. He's trying to help people see that this man lived and he died and he rose again. Now go back to your Scriptures and see what they look like now. Does that make sense? And to me, that's a way of understanding, I think, what this class is about. is trying to look at Scripture the way Paul looked at Scripture, the way he showed us to look at Scripture. Instead of looking at the Gospel through the lens of that book that we can worship for its own sake, what does it mean to look at that book through the lens of the Gospel, through what we now understand. I'm, I'm not saying that one of these is right and one of these is wrong, but, but I'm saying it, I think it does make a difference. So if you haven't been to service yet, you should go. Rubio's in really good form today. But, but pay attention to, to what he says about Paul, because that moment he focuses on, I think is connected to what we're trying to do in this class, which is, is to get our heads around the Gospel. Not get our heads around the Bible, exactly, but to get our heads around the Bible through the lens of the Gospel rather than vice versa. Maybe, I don't want us to think about the Gospel and the Bible being in competition, but what you're pointing at is to say we're looking at Scripture, if the Pharisees looked at Scripture, the Sadducees looked at Scripture, the Zealots looked at there, there are different ways to look at Scripture, so we're almost getting into like a telescopic you got the gospel is helping us look through scripture and through that dual lens we see who we are, how to live. So, so they're working together, but the Bible is just not a self-interpreting thing. It's still authoritative, we still look through it, it's just not self-interpreting. And I think if we forget that, then it's really easy, just like the Pharisees, just like Peter before the vision, he knew what the scripture said. He treated people the way he read the scriptures until he understands the gospel differently. Does that make sense? Anyway, I just wanted to leave you with... with that's just what I'm pondering. I'm trying to figure out how to make some sense out of it. It's time to go. Um, thank you all for being here very much. Uh, Lake Charles. About as far away as you can get.